The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Welcome to Fathom Church. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, glad that you're with us. Hey, uh, would you please grab your Bibles if you brought them? And I hope you did. And let's open them up to Matthew chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can borrow one of our hardback black ones under every chair and open that up to Matthew 9. You can open a phone or a tablet to Matthew 9. Love for you to see this text. Uh, If you're online with us, you can click that little Bible tab. Uh, We will be reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter 9, okay? Uh, as, As you're turning there, for the, for the last couple of years, I've kind of gotten into running. I mean, like jogging, jogging, soft J, right? Like that sort of thing, uh, running. And uh, mostly like 5Ks, 10Ks, nothing crazy, but just kind of getting in shape. It's been an interesting thing. It's been a fun thing. Uh, but, but here's the truth. The last 15 months has been strange. Like running in COVID was weird, just a weird thing. And so let me just put my cards on the table, Okay. I never once wore a face mask when I ran during the COVID-19 pandemic. All right, uh, listen, don't, I mean, don't get mad at me, all right? This is why I ran outside, okay? I ran outside, and by, by its very nature, running outdoors is socially distanced, okay? Just by its nature, when you run past somebody, maybe you run past somebody on a path, maybe you're within six feet for what, like, three seconds if you're slow, like maybe a second if you're doing all right, right? Like, I mean, I I would literally have to spit in somebody's face, which I could do, but I didn't, okay? I would have to do that in order to pass germs to somebody while running uh, in COVID. So so here's what I would do. I, I, I wanted to be a little bit more courteous even during COVID. So if I came up on somebody else who was running, uh, I would move off of the path onto the grass or dirt or God help me, the street, I put my own life in danger so that I would give more than a six-foot berth to anybody who I was passing. And then I would always yell the universal passing code as I was coming up on somebody, which is, on your left, (laughs) right? Whether you ride a bike or whether you run, that's it. On your left, when you pass somebody, that's good trail etiquette. Uh, So I just wanted you to know this, uh, confession time, I didn't wear a mask. Okay, even when they said you should wear a mask outside. I didn't wear a mask ever uh, while running outside. Hear me, like a sane person. (laughs) Now that we're maskless, I can say some of these things that I've been holding back for a while. I'll tell you what though, there were moments when I ran during COVID-19 and I seriously ticked some people off on the paths, giving them a 12 foot berth putting my own life at risk, like you would have thought I was running with blankets of smallpox with some of the response that I got from people. I mean, it was wild, okay? Uh, By the way, if you ran outside by yourself with a mask on, we need to have a conversation, okay? Um, Mostly because I just have questions, okay, that I just need answered. I need you to explain some things to me. So uh, I, I say all that to say this. I'm calling today's sermon, On Your Left! That's the title of today's sermon. On your left. That's what we're going to talk about today. Because as we come out of this COVID season, and I know it's still around, but as we kind of emerge from this COVID season, one of the questions that I'm hearing from uh, most church leaders is this. How are we going to regrow our churches? What are we going to do? Okay, almost now, now hear me, uh, the, the numbers across the board. Almost all churches are significantly smaller than they were pre-COVID. They just are. 
Doesn't matter, mega church, small church, rural church, urban church, okay? Denominational church, non-denominational church. Almost all churches are significantly smaller than they were pre-COVID. And the question is, what do we do? This isn't my church, this is our church. What do we do about this? Like, like do, we, do we try to chase down all the people who haven't come back? Maybe. Do, I, do we just try and like reinvent ourselves? so that we're cooler, we can attract more people. I mean, like I get some ripped jeans and like a low cut V-neck and really trying, I don't know, dye my hair. I'm not sure what I do on that to try and get cool, but like, is that what we do? Do we just kind of settle with the fact that we're smaller? This is the new normal, as everybody likes to say. I want to offer what I think from the text is a biblical answer, a biblical option uh, that actually was not Uh, it it was the same option that was there pre-COVID, okay? And the biblical option for how to grow a church is, hear me, mission, evangelism. How do you grow a church? Biblically, it's the mission of God, okay? And and so so our plan for how we want to grow Fathom, and I talked with the elders about this, so I've got elder approval, okay? Our plan for how we want to grow Fathom Church isn't to hunt down and try and beg and convince people to come here, okay? Our plan for how we want to grow this church isn't to kind of go novel and try and make it cooler or something like that. Our, our, Our plan isn't to just throw up our arms in frustration and futility, Rather, our plan is to do what God's people have always been called to do, which is join on God's mission to seek and save the lost. Hear me, that's the best way to grow a church. It's evangelism. And it's what we said at the beginning of 2021 when we did our members meeting. The vision that we cast, if you remember, you saw this, uh, is that we wanted this year to dig deep here. I'll put it up here. Dig deep and reach wide. So as we've been in the gospel of Matthew, we've been talking about deep discipleship. We've been talking about paying anything it costs to follow Jesus. The cost of discipleship is everything that we have. But then there's also this reach wide aspect to this. And now hear me, our plan for how to do this, our plan for evangelism, our plan for reaching our neighbors and for seeking those people that don't know Jesus around us, uh, our plan is, hear me, you. You are the plan. I, by the way, I preached a sermon called You Are the Plan long before we did COVID. You are the plan. Our strategy is you. It's you getting to know your neighbors. Maybe that feels too much. Maybe it's like, I don't know my neighbors. I don't feel like I can go just cold knock my neighbors. I've been there for four years. They already know that I'm the angry person that doesn't talk to them. So maybe that's too much. <laughs> but listen, you got to have a friend. Every single one of us knows somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Our plan is you investing in those people, in your coworkers, in your friends, in goodness, your family members. Our strategy is you sharing Christ's love with people. There are people all around you, where you live, where you work, where you play, where you shop. There are people all around you. And instead of passing them and saying, on your left, and just keep running... I think the biblical call is something very different. It's to join God's mission. And so this is, we're going to see this in the text today. We're going to see this in our text. Let's look at, at Matthew chapter 9. We're going to finish this chapter and move into chapter 10. Matthew 9, we're going to start in verse 35. 
Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. But when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay. This is a turning point in Matthew's gospel. Okay, we've studied this for the last couple of months. Uh, Starting in chapter eight, we find uh, Jesus' authority on display. Matthew is really trying to demonstrate Jesus' authority and what it means to, to follow him. And so we've said this every week. There are three miracles and then a discipleship moment. What's the cost of discipleship? And then we looked at another three miracles and then, and then Jesus teaches on discipleship again. And then we did three more miracles. And today Matthew is gonna turn a quarter. A corner. Now, hear me. I'm not sure if you've noticed yet, but thus far, Jesus has conducted his mission virtually single-handedly. Like Jesus has done it all, and his disciples have remained in the background. We, they are mentioned a few times, but they're mostly just observing Jesus doing the work. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been demonstrating his authority. And now in, in verse 36, he sees the crowds. Jesus sees the crowds, and it says he had compassion for them. Like this visceral emotion in his heart, this pity and this desire to see them Live and so he and, he and he says that it's because they they look like sheep without a shepherd. Now that's Old Testament language. That's co-opted from the Old Testament. Jesus is stealing from the Old Testament. Sheep without a shepherd. Every time it is used in the Old Testament, it's talking about the Israelites, God's people, and the failure of the leadership of the Israelites, God's leaders. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he says to his disciples, "Hey." And if you were raised in church, you know this, this verse, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Essentially, he says, hey, there's a race to be run here and we need some people to run. We need some laborers. We need some, some people who are gonna run and not just pass people on their left, but actually run and share the love and hope that the gospel offers. We need laborers. We need runners. Now, This is interesting because if you remember back to Matthew chapter four, in Matthew four, Jesus begins to gather followers, disciples to follow him. And he calls, the first two that he calls is a guy named Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, who are fishermen. And in Matthew 4, 19, he says this, you might know this verse if you were raised in the church, Uh, follow me and I will make you, do you remember this? Fishers of men. But what have they been doing for the last four chapters? They ain't been fishing. They've been sitting on the sidelines. They've been watching Jesus do some fishing and they've been maybe learning a little bit, maybe being coached a little bit, but they've not done anything. But hear me, all of this is gonna change now. Starting in chapter 10, everything is going to change because he he will make good on his promise now. He'll he'll get Peter and he'll get Andrew and he'll get the others and he's gonna say, let's get to work. Let's become fishers of men. Look at chapter 10, verse one. So Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits 
to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Okay, so, so Jesus, now hear me, back in, in, in chapter nine, the last verse of chapter nine, he said, hey, pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest. And then 10 verse one, he says, oh, you're actually gonna be the answer to that prayer. That's essentially what he just said. He has told the disciples to pray for God to send more laborers. And now those disciples become the very answer to the prayer that they prayed. This is how he always works. Oh, you think something needs to change? Go for it. Oh, you've got that friend who you really hope somebody's going to share Christ with? That's on you. This is how it works. They've been passive observers, and now they're going to become active participants, and it'll never end. For the rest of church history, this is how it's going to work. Now, the choice for the number 12 is highly symbolic, but very important. They use 12 because remember, Jesus, he's mourning the fact that the crowds are like Israel was. He's comparing them to the Israelites. He's like, they're sheep without a shepherd. And so in that same language, taking that Old Testament idea, he now calls 12 disciples, just like the 12 patriarchs, just like the 12 tribes of Israel to essentially initiate a new kingdom community, new leaders for this new kingdom reality that Jesus is ushering onto the scene. And then it says that he gave them his authority. It says Jesus gave the 12 his authority, which is all we've seen through chapters eight and nine. Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority over unclean spirits. Jesus' authority over nature. Jesus' authority over death. Jesus' authority over all things. And now he gives that to his disciples. Now, now he passes this on to the 12, which is kind of shocking because in ancient rabbinic tradition, the, the rabbi would always have disciples who would follow, but those disciples wouldn't be set loose to do ministry until they had been fully trained. These dudes haven't done anything yet. These 12 are just are, have been watching a little bit, maybe following Jesus a little bit, but now he's going to send them with his authority. Now, normally you wouldn't do ministry until you've been fully trained. And I think this is the first point I want to make for us today about running. Okay. The first thing is this, we are called to run with authority. Listen, if you're a Christian in here, did you know that, that Jesus has given you his authority? He has given you his authority to be used for his mission. He's given you that authority on purpose. Why? Because he's got a mission for you. He has a mission for you, a race for you to run, as it were. There are people all around you on your left. And I just love that he gives out his authority before we even, they, they even know how to use it. These guys don't know how to use it. I mean, we say this all the time, but this is great. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. That's a great idea. Okay, this is how it has played out for me. I'll share this with you, but many of you know I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't grow up going to church. I got saved when I was 16, and so I was a junior in high school. And then as, uh, as an 18-year-old, right after graduation of high school, I got hired to do youth ministry in a church. What fools? I mean, God bless them. But I think back to 18-year-old Chris being a youth minister and think, man, I can't believe those kids aren't heretics now. Thinking of the things that I taught them. I mean, goodness, I'm 18. I had no idea what I was doing. No clue. I loved Jesus. I loved kids. And I just went after it. 
Okay, I'll never forget the first youth camp that I did. I was a leader uh, a few months into this and it, it, it was a winter camp up in the mountains. And if you've been to a winter camp up in the mountains, a youth camp, it's like Saturday night's the thing. Saturday night's the thing. This is a time where you, the, the band is playing super emotionally charged songs. Everybody's weeping. The preacher is getting a little frothy at his sides of his mouth and he's sharing the gospel. And it's, it's this big kind of emotional thing. And so this is happening Saturday night. And one kid from my cabin, I'm a cabin, leader, one of the kids in my cabin, his name was Pete. He came up, comes up to me, taps me on the shoulder after the, the gospel has been shared. He says, Chris, can I talk with you? I'm like, okay. So we like leave the room because they're playing music way too loud for any, anything except for the Holy Spirit to be working in people's brains, right? But um, so we go outside and, and he's like, he, he starts talking to me. He's sharing some stuff that's going on in his life. His parents are going through a divorce. He's in a pretty dark place, but Man, the message, he's like, that message resonated with me. He says, I think I want to become a Christian. And so I'm brand new in this, right? Like I'm barely a Christian myself. So I don't know what to do, but now I'm in this place where I I have a chance to lead a kid to Christ. So I don't want to screw this thing up. So I'm like, okay, um, great, Pete. Okay, uh, let's get on our knees. Because apparently you have to be on your knees to accept Christ. I don't know. I mean, I had no idea. So, so, and Pete just like gets down on his knees with me. And so I'm like, uh, okay, what next? What next? Um, and so I turn to him. I'm like, are, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, no, 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 dumb, dumb, dumb. Don't give him a way out, right? Like, don't do that. And, and he's like, he's like, yeah, man, I'm in. I was like, okay, all right, well, let, let's, let's pray, just, just pray after me. Jesus, I think Pete wants to follow you. So Pete, tell Jesus that you want to follow him. <laughs> and hear me. Pete prayed, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he became a Christian. And I know Pete. Well, no, I mean, we're friends on Facebook, which means we're acquaintances, long distances apart but he's still a Christian today. I got to be a part of this. And listen, I had no idea what I was doing. It was actually terrible, <laughs> terrible evangelism strategy. But, but, but listen, I was called to run with authority and Christ gave me that authority. And that was the first kid I ever led to Christ. It's incredible. Church, we are called to run with authority. Listen to me. If you have no idea what you're doing, hear me, you'd make a great disciple. These guys have no clue, but they're ready to go. Let's see what happens here. Verses two through four. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay. Matthew now calls them not disciples, but he uses the word apostle. This is the only time Matthew will use this word, but this will become the the common title for these 12, these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles, all through the book of Acts and all through Paul's, Paul's literature, they will forever now, evermore now be known as the apostles, which means sent one. 
These are the sent ones, and this will be the term for the 12 going forward. And these 12 apostles, they're listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in Acts chapter 1. So there are four lists of apostles, just, you know, good Bible knowledge to have. Uh, and, and in those lists, the names vary slightly. So we're going to address that, and the order sometimes gets a little shuffled, and we'll talk about that as well. So let's run through the list, and I'll just make some basic comments about some of these guys along the way, okay? Here we go. Simon, Andrew, James, John, they're the first four in. Matthew chapter 4, those four guys, they're all fishermen, and they are called by Jesus to be fishers of men. Simon Peter is here labeled first. He's the first Most scholars will interpret this as first among equals. He is the first among the 12. He will be the de facto leader of this group of the apostles. He is the rock upon which Christ will build his church. He's the first pope, right? Okay, you follow me here? This is Peter, okay? This is why, and and, and in every list, he is always listed first. There's other changes that will happen, but Peter is always first, okay? Then comes Philip, Bartholomew, and Thomas. That is doubting Thomas. Bummer of a nickname, Sorry, buddy. Forevermore, John 20, you ruined it. Doubting Thomas, okay? Then comes Matthew. Now, Matthew is the writer of this gospel. And Matthew, in this uh, list, he identifies himself as the tax collector. And I just love this. If you remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about this, the call of Matthew from his tax collecting booth. But I really love that he calls himself Matthew, the tax collector, as in, I have no shame in who I used to be. That is not who I am any longer, but I will not hide that I was a tax collector, despised, sinful, but now I am an apostle. He's not the same man anymore. And this is interesting. He is one of only two apostles who are identified by their occupations. We'll get to the second one in a moment and I'll explain why. Next comes uh, the second James, son of Alphaeus. James 2, okay? Uh, then Thaddeus. Now, now Thaddeus is an interesting dude, okay? Because uh, we don't know much about him. Uh, in Luke's gospel, his name's not there. Thaddeus is missing, and in his place is a man named Judas, son of James, uh, which most scholars believe is the same person. Thaddeus, Judas, son of James, referring to the same, kind of like Simon, Peter. Sometimes you see Simon, sometimes you see Peter. They think this is uh, the same guy uh, because it would be a bummer to be the other Judas. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, is this the other Judas? No, not, 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 not that Judas. Just call me Thaddeus, okay? Just call me Thaddeus. But Luke, he's a physician. He's a bit anal retentive. He's like, no, I'm calling you Judas. You know, I think that's what happened. Then, second to last, Simon the Zealot. The only other occupation listed in this list is Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were nationalists. They were insurrectionists. Okay, these zealots were the ones who were trained to fight against the Romans. These are violent, a violent branch of Jews. Okay, they often assassinated Roman uh, higher-uppers. They're trying to overthrow the Roman occupation, okay? And, and, and so these are the most extreme Jews of this time. Now, I think Matthew points out his former occupation as a tax collector and Simon's occupation as a zealot because to have a zealot and a tax collector on the same team is astounding. It's astounding, In any other capacity, hear me, Simon would have likely killed Matthew. And I'm not exaggerating. 
he would have put him to death by the sword. That's how far apart these two ideologies are. But in Jesus' team, the zealot and the tax collector are on the same squad. Then last, and certainly least, uh, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, uh, he is mentioned last in every list. Just like Peter's mentioned first in every list, Judas is mentioned last in every list. Uh, And interestingly, uh, I did a little research, it is unknown what Iscariot means. We don't really know what Iscariot means. Many think uh, it's linked to a Greek term, uh, sicarios, which uh, means assassin. Okay, Uh, others, I literally found all these suggestions. Others suggest Iscariot means false one, man of Jericho, man from Sikar, bag carrier, like he was carrying the purse, you know, the money bag, the bag carrier, or redhead. So uh, sorry to our redheads in the church, just like Judas, okay? Um, Why all these details? Why, Why would I give you all these details about these 12? Well, it brings me to my second point about running. Hear me this. We need to run with a crew. We need to run with authority but you need to run with some others, with some people, with a crew. You, you, th- this is not a solo effort. Christianity is not a solo effort. Much more so, evangelism is not a solo effort. This is one of the reasons why being meaningfully connected to a local church is of the utmost importance. And I know that sounds self-serving from the pastor of a local church, but listen, it is and it's true. Yes, you should come to church on Sunday, but much more than that, you need to run with some people in your church. You need a crew. And I use that word crew because uh, I've been currently reading a book called The Boys in the Boat. Anybody read this thing? The Boys in the Boat? We got a couple of readers in here. Okay. I don't know if anybody read. Okay. But uh, Boys in the Boat. This is a book uh, about the, the nine American collegiate athletes. They are rowers. They row crew, okay? They rowed in the 1936 Berlin Olympics during, uh, right under the, the Nazi Germany uh, years. They are rowers. They are a crew. That's where they get the term, okay? It's a really good book. I'm having fun with it, uh, and, and I would commend it to you all. Uh, but, he, but I'm in the middle of the book, and in the middle of the book, there's some teaching on rowing crew, Because listen, I don't know nothing about that. It was really popular like a century ago. It's not so popular anymore. But crew, especially with the uh, Olympics coming up, we should be well aware of this. Let me read um, what I think is an inspiring quote about crew from this book. The, The greatest paradox of the sport has to do with the psychological makeup of the people who pull the oars. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength, but they have no stars. The team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscles, oars, boat, and water, the single whole unified and beautiful symphony that crew in motion becomes is all that matters. Not the individual, not the self. The psychology is complex. You see, even as rowers must subsume their often fierce sense of independence and self-reliance, at the same time, they must hold true to their individuality, their unique capabilities. Even if they could, few rowing coaches would simply clone their biggest, strongest, smartest, and most capable rowers. 
Crew races are not won by clones. They are won by crews. And great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. This is the church, my friends. You've got to run with a crew if you want to have any fighting chance at being on God's mission. Zealots, tax collectors, and fishermen. Like, this is how we will do this. We will do this together. We need to run together to reach those on our left. Now, let me finish up with one last point. Let's look at verse five. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, We have to do a little work right here. Okay, did Jesus really just say, don't go preach the gospel to the Gentiles? Is that what he just said? Because that's what I read. Did you read that? Don't go to the Samaritans or to the Gentiles. Jesus, that doesn't sound very Jesus-y of you. Like, what about, I don't know, the Great Commission? Go into all nations. So what's going on here? Well, let me explain here. On the surface, this seems like a contradiction of, oh goodness, everything else that Jesus has ever said? So he certainly cannot mean we got to exclude the Jews, I mean the Gentiles, from conversations around the gospel. That certainly cannot mean this. So why restrict the, the 12 apostles, their ministry, to the Jewish people? Why do that right now? Um, I think the reason is, back to what we said in chapter 9, verse 36, he, he's calling them to the lost sheep, like sheep without a shepherd, He's talking about Old Testament Israel, and he's essentially kind of replacing with these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles. And now Jesus says uh, that that essentially you're going to start with the Jews. Paul will say this too. In Romans chapter one, he will say that the gospel is to the Jew first and then also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. So I think this is a deliberate charge for, hear me, just the 12 apostles on this missionary journey that they're about to embark on. To minister first to the Jewish people and it will prepare them for the future universal mission that the church is called to. This is just an instruction for the 12 on their first missionary journey to essentially start where they are with their people and then eventually they would go to all the ends of the earth. But I think there's something that I want to apply right here at the very end of our time together and it's my last point about running. The third, we should run where we are. You should run where you are. Wherever you are, that's where God has you to do mission, to be an evangelist, to run. So question, how many of you in here are not native to Colorado? I'm not, okay, not native to Colorado. It's most of us, okay, most of, many of us are not native to, okay, uh, how many of you are new to Colorado in the last three years? Last three years, goodness, you guys are part of the problem, okay? <laughs> Housing prices, traffic on Santa Fe, I appreciate you guys, okay? You're part of the problem. But, but listen, mo- people are moving here. 
People are moving here in droves. You might, you might be upset about that. You might begrudge that. But listen, that's what's happening, okay? And most people move here for work, right? They, their job moves them here. Or, or maybe they can work wherever, and so they want to play here. So they moved here to go to the mountains. They wanted to be in the mountains, and so they're here to kind of work uh, for the weekend, or, or maybe people moved here to, to smoke things legally or to drink things, you know, craft beer, I don't know. Like, there, there, lots of people move here for lots of different reasons. But here's the truth, okay? If you are a Christian, here's the truth. You didn't move here. You were sent here. I don't care if it was for a year or if it was for 10 years or if you'll never leave Colorado again, you didn't move here. No matter how temporary you might think it is, you were sent here to Denver for a purpose to be on God's mission. You might say, hey, I came here for work, Chris, and to be a missionary. Well, you know, I actually came here to ski and be a missionary. Well, I came here because the craft beer scene is great. And listen, awesome, okay? We might need to have a conversation about moderation. But, but, but God brought you here not just for that. If you are in Christ, it's, it, you, you're here because God has a plan and a purpose for you. You have been sent and called to be a part of this amazing city. You have, okay? God has put you here. He has given you your neighbors and your friends and your jobs, and, and he has a reason for that. He's put you here so that the whole of your life would point others to Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. There are people in this city that God wants to reach, and he put you here to get them. If that sounds militant, guess what? It is. That's the mission that God has for his people to dig deep and to reach wide. Denver's a great city. People are moving here. Littleton is a great city. Centennial is a great city. Highlands Ranch is a great city. Inglewood is a great city. Lakewood is a great city. Aurora is a city. <laughs> there are many in this city who need to hear the hope that can be found in the gospel. And that's why you're here. You are God's plan to reach the people around you. You got to run where you are. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. Let's run. Let's run. Now, if we were to read the rest of this passage, verses 7 to uh, 15, uh, most of this is contextual to that first mission trip for the 12 apostles. And so we're not going to go through that uh, because what I want to leave you with is this. Listen, as the pastor of Fathom, as the pastor of this church, uh, I want Fathom to grow. In this post-COVID world, I want our church to grow. Now, not in some like weird mega church delusions of grandeur with foggers and hazers and lasers and ripped jeans, okay? That's not how I want us to grow. If, if you're into that, great. That's probably not us. But hear me, as your pastor, I want this church to grow. I talked with the elders. We want this church to grow, but here's how we want it to grow. Here's how. We want it to grow with new people moving to this area, okay, on your blocks, in your offices, in your sphere of influence. We, we, we want it to grow with people who, who don't have church homes. Maybe they did at one point, but 
They aren't meaningfully connected to a crew. They aren't meaningfully connected to, to digging deeper and reaching wider. And so, so we want our church to grow with those people. And then finally, we want it to grow with people who have never before heard the gospel. You realize that that number is increasing, not decreasing. We live in a post-Christian society. There are more people on your block who think they know what Christianity is all about, and they have never heard the gospel clearly articulated. We want our church to grow with people who have never heard the gospel before. But now here's the truth, okay? It's not going to happen by me preaching better sermons. Yo, I've probably peaked, okay? Close to the peak, somewhere in there. I'm, I'm, at, I'm, at, I'm at level, okay? I can hardly breathe, okay? That's where I'm at. I'm at the peak, okay? Be- better sermons isn't gonna do it. Better music isn't gonna do it. Better programs for your families is not the plan for how our church is going to grow. Now, listen, we're gonna work on these things. We're gonna keep doing our due diligence to do our jobs well, but, but I tell, I'm telling you, the future of the church is not in making it awesome and attracting a bunch of people, This is not the future of the church. That's not the plan for how we'll grow. You are the plan. You are the plan. You are how God is relentless in his pursuit of those he loves. And I am, but on my block with my daughter's soccer team. That's where I am. So let me give us two practical applications as we close up. And they are this. I want to call us to invest and invite. Invest and invite. Who's the neighbor that you need to get to know? Who's the friend you need to connect with? Who's the coworker you need to invest in? Listen, this doesn't have to be like introvert, extrovert, I don't care. You've got people in your sphere of influence who don't know Jesus. Who who are those people? I mean that practically. What's his name? Where does she live? I want you to get that into your head and start investing in those around you who don't have church homes. Invest in their lives. Invest in your friendships. Deeper than talking about the weather or talking about whatever recreation you share together. I mean, invest in them. Invest deeply into the people that Jesus puts in your path when you're running. And then invite Who's the person you need to invite into your home? Because I think it starts with where you live before it starts with inviting them here. Who's that person that you need to invite in? Who's that person you need to start praying for? Invite yourself into a deeper conversation with them. How can I pray for you? I don't know anybody who's ever, I've, I've asked that of blatant atheists, angry, arrogant atheists will say, oh, well, my mom's got cancer. I've never, I've never had anybody say, you are offending me with your religion. Don't pray for me. I've never been there. Now, maybe you have, but I'm, who's that person who you eventually need to invite to church with you? I mean, we say this all the time that we want to be like Home Depot. Right? You can do it. We can help. Yeah, get them here. I'll start yelling at them. That's fine. <laughs> but you can do this. We're just here to help you along the way. Who do you need to invest in and who do you need to invite? And who do you need to stop passing on your left and just keep running? And how often do we as Christians just do that? I do this. 
I wanna be better at this. We gotta run with authority. We gotta run with the crew and we've gotta run where we are. Let me leave us with the scripture that was read over us this morning as an encouragement. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three. Let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, I'm so thankful for this passage. I'm thankful that it shows up in Matthew's gospel when it did for us as as we are just kind of being released from some of this COVID stuff. Lord, I pray that you would would call to your church, call to your people with this, this passage this morning, reminding us that that we have a mission. We are in the middle of a, of a dying, of a lost world. And you have called each local church to be an outpost for your gospel and each Christian to be an ambassador for Christ where they live, where they work, where they play, where they shop. Lord, would you, would you call us deeper into this, deeper into your mission? Yeah, we want to dig deep in our faith, but we want to reach wide. We want to see our friends and our family and our neighborhoods and our city transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe it. And we see that this is the way that you've always been doing this. Call us to your mission, Father. Bring people to mind who we need to start loving and intentionally investing in and inviting. God, thank you for this ragtag bunch of apostles who faithfully started the church of whom we get to benefit from every week. We love you, Father. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.